Do any of you have blenders? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Not currently running. Is this like a like you're like, ooh, I've got a really spicy question for you guys. Do you have a blender? Um, yeah. So I have never had one before, but I got one of those little ones, you know, for smoothies. Yeah. And I just had my first smoothie and I'm never eating normal food again. Like Wait, you've you don't have never to cook, had a you smoothie? don't have to chew. I've, I've had a smoothie before. <laughs> How lazy are you, Galen? You don't want to chew? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to chew or cook because the things that you can put in a smoothie are such a pain in the ass to chew, like kale. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk and I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. All of us at 538 have been off for the past week, so bear with us as we wake up our politics brain on this Monday morning. We're going to have to dive right in because we are just a week away from Election Day in Georgia, where Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock are competing in a Senate runoff. Early voting is underway, and we're going to check in on how that race is looking. We'll also take a look at what is on the docket in this upcoming lame duck session in Congress. Republicans will have a majority in the House next year. In fact, I don't think we've recorded a podcast since that was made official. So let me officially say Republicans will have a majority in the House next year. So there is just a little over a month of unified Democratic control left in Congress. And then we're going to spend the rest of the podcast on, yes, a 2024 Democratic primary draft. Before we left for Thanksgiving, Nate and I discussed the news that former President Trump is officially running in 2024 and debated his odds against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. When it comes to Democrats, Biden will have to make up his mind about whether he'll run within just a few months. If he does, will anyone challenge him? And if he doesn't, what's the field of possibilities look like? Here with me to discuss is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hi, Galen. Also with us is senior writer Amelia Thompson-Dubow. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. And senior elections analyst Nathaniel Reka. Hey, Nathaniel. Howdy, Galen. How's everyone doing? Are our politics brains turned on yet? They never turned off, Galen. <laughs> oh, mine turned off. Uh, I feel what bad for said. you. <laughs> no, no, mine turned off. That makes me sad, Nathaniel. Yeah, that's bad. I'm like a robot. I have to power down sometimes or I don't function at all. I'm like this computer that I'm using right now. I have to restart it every Monday. Otherwise, it freezes while we're recording the podcast. Or that. Um, Nathaniel, not even like mid turkey stuffing and gravy where you like, I'm going to take a minute to give thanks and not think about politics. Well, first of all, Galen, turkey is disgusting. So I was not <laughs> eating turkey this Thanksgiving. Um, but wow. no, I yes, of course, there were there were momentary lapses of judgment in which I failed to think about politics for a few seconds. But thankfully, we we still have Georgia. We still have California's 13th congressional district, which remains unresolved to uh, to keep us engaged. After Georgia, what is the next election? That's a great question. So we have, let's see, the Chicago mayoral election. First round is coming up on February 28th. Um, we have Something a few special work, elections yeah. before that. I think Ooh. I think I want to say it's January 10th. There is a special election for the Virginia State Senate, which could be important considering um, Democrats just have like a two-seat majority there. Um, we have, there are going to be special elections in Pennsylvania's state house, which will be important because as 
folks may know from following our live blog um, last week, Democrats won 102 seats and Republicans won 101. Um, but a one Democratic member uh, passed away and then two others are going to have to resign to take other jobs. So Republicans are going to temporarily have more seats in the Pennsylvania State House for the beginning of the session. But then these special elections are going to be what gives Democrats the majority. And they're in safe blue seats, but the elections have to happen. And we don't know exactly when the timing of those are going to be. So, you know, the elections will never stop, Galen. All right. Good to hear. I'm sure something. you wanted all that detail. Yeah. <laughs> um, Be careful what you ask for, Galen. Okay. Well, in the meantime, we do have one high-profile election that we're still covering, which is that Georgia is once again going to a runoff in its Senate election. In the first round, Warnock won 49.5% of the vote and Walker won 48.5%. The Libertarian candidate won 2% of the vote. So Warnock won a similar runoff last year. But historically, runoffs have seemed to benefit Republicans in Georgia because the electorate has tended to be older and whiter. So Alex, how do you see those dynamics playing out this time? Is 2021 or the sort of historical runoffs that came before that more of a reference point for this election? So that's a question I've been wrestling with as well, um, just getting ready for the December 6th runoff. Um, and I really think it's, you know, this race could go either way. I think what's complicated in making the comparison to 2021 is that a lot of factors were different back then. You know, in 2021, control of the Senate hung in balance, whereas it does not this year. Democrats have already clinched their 50-seat majority. And in 2021, you also had former President Donald Trump essentially telling his base, to not trust Georgia's voting process, and that did dampen turnout among Republican voters. This year, of course, you know, when Trump uh, announced his 2024 presidential run, he specifically said, you know, go out and vote for Herschel Walker. Um, I think it's to be determined whether he's actually going to make a stop in the peach state, but you know, it's kind of hard to like make an apples to apples comparison um, between what happened then and what happened now. But I think the results of this race will obviously show whether 2021 was more of an aberration or if it's indicative of Georgia becoming a purple or, you know, just slightly more competitive uh, state for Democrats running statewide. Nathaniel and Amelia, how are you thinking about this question? I agree with Alex. You know, we do have this track record of runoffs favoring Republicans in Georgia. Um, but the Georgia of today is not the Georgia of the you know 1990s or the 2000s. So um, I'm just really interested to see um, what it looks like. You know, obviously, you ask any 538er this question, they're going to say, "Let's look at the polling." Um, so far, as we record this, we've seen two polls of the Georgia runoff so far: uh, one that gave Warnock a four-point lead, and one that gave Walker a one-point lead. So obviously, it's just two polls. Hopefully, we'll get more. But uh, as of right now, it looks like maybe Warnock has a small advantage if you just average those out. Um, you know, we will hopefully be publishing a polling average in this race uh, if we get uh, five polls from at least three different pollsters, which is our threshold for publishing polling averages. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, it, it, I think I, everybody, you know, the one thing we can say for sure is that it is going to be competitive. It's not like there's going to be this huge turnoff drop that's automatically going to favor uh, Walker or Warren for that matter. And Nathaniel, should we expect that pollsters are going to be out in the field? Should we expect to get five polls from three different pollsters or have they all turned their politics brains off too? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we don't have any kind of special intel on that, but I think there are two factors Come that on, are working man. against um, having more polls than, or at least as many polls as we had in 2021. And that, of course, is a um, the control of the Senate isn't on the line, so the interest in the race isn't as high. And then B, also, there's less time um, to conduct those polls because in 2020. One, which was part of the 2020 cycle, those runoffs were held in early January. Uh, Georgia changed its runoff law to hold earlier runoffs um, in in the future. So now those runoffs, of course, are happening uh, in early December. So that gives us some sense of where the polling stands today. We don't have much of it. But Amelia, do you think we learned anything about the two candidates' coalitions that might give us some sort of hints about where things are headed in the, the first election? Well, I think we did learn something important, which is that Walker is a weak candidate. Um, And we saw that because he ran considerably behind all the other Republicans on the ticket in November. So Walker is going into this, you know, just he's just going head to head against Warnock. There's nothing else on the ticket. And that could be bad for him because it's also possible that having a more popular Republican like incumbent Governor Brian Kemp on the ballot may have brought some people out to vote for him. I think it's possible that some people who were more lukewarm on him who voted in November might just stay home. And the impact of Trump's endorsement and involvement is going to be interesting to see, too. Obviously, as Alex said, he is taking a different tack this time by saying, yes, go vote and vote for the Republican candidate. Democrats seem to think that that will also not be helpful for the Republican. Um, There's a Warnock ad that was running that was just Trump endorsing Walker. That was literally the whole ad. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that gives you a sense of how at least um, some Democrats are seeing the potential impact of Trump's endorsement of Walker. Of course, though, we'll have to see whether Democrats are as enthused now that control of the Senate isn't on the line. Um, And, you know, it's possible that turnout could be lower there, too. Another flip side to that is, you know, Walker was the only statewide Republican in Georgia who did not win outright in November. And it could be possible that Republicans now are more energized because they don't want this to be the one loss um, for them. So I can see a potential argument for that too. And I think in talking to a few Republican strategists in Georgia, there seems to be this sense that now that Walker has Kemp's, you know, campaign infrastructure in a sense, and now Kemp is very vocal on the campaign trail for Walker, um, more so than he was in November, that could also help him too. And so far, um, you know, again, we just don't know Trump's plans for Georgia. We know um, former President Barack Obama will be there for Warnock, I believe, on December 1st. Um, but Trump hasn't announced plans. And if he does, I I don't know if that will help <laughs> or hurt uh, Walker or Warnock. So that'll be interesting to watch as well. Does Biden have plans to go down there? Biden hasn't announced anything, uh, to my knowledge. Runoffs are weird. And we're also in a kind of, it seems like new era of higher turnout elections. And a lot of those historical comparisons that Alex and Nathaniel, you've looked at, were in an era when turnout, we might have just expected to be lower generally. So I think that also throws a wrench into things. Um, It's possible that, you know, people just voted 
it's only four weeks to the next election. They're still kind of tuned in. They haven't turned off their politics brain. Um, and they're more likely to go vote on both sides than they might have been in a past runoff. Yeah, it's interesting. The other argument could be that there's voting fatigue almost. I don't know if that's a thing that truly exists, but Warnock will have had to sort of run a statewide campaign four times if and when. Yeah. Maybe people are tired of voting. Is there anything, and we just went through a whole cycle addressing these questions, but of course, early voting has begun. And so folks are looking at those numbers. And I think elections watchers have noticed just like how high Democratic turnout seems to be amongst early voters and how high Black turnout is in particular. We generally caution people not to focus on the early vote, but is this unique in any way? How should we think about this, Nathaniel? I I just wouldn't, honestly. I mean, Don't early vote, it. like, you know, yes, you, you know, you see a lot of... Um, you know, the early vote so far has been, you know, very Democratic. It's been, you know, Democratic counties have been the ones that have generally been offering more days of early voting um, than Republican counties. And that's obviously part of it. And but some people are like, oh, you know, Republicans are shooting themselves in the foot by not allowing early voting. But like the reality is early voting is just taking voters who would have voted on Election Day anyway and kind of redistributing them earlier in the cycle. And in those Republican counties that aren't allowing early voting on certain days, they're they're just going to vote on Election Day. We know that Republicans prefer to vote on election day anyway. Um, so in the end, you know, it, it, it's really just kind of, you know, it, it, it's not like you get extra credit for jumping out to an, uh, an early lead in a race. You know, it's about who, who crosses the finish line uh, first, right? Yeah, I actually, so I, to be totally honest, didn't turn my politics brain off entirely either. So I saw some of your tweets over the break, Nathaniel, and I saw you say that there's, there's no evidence that early voting actually produces higher turnout overall and that it may actually lead to lower turnout. That seems counterintuitive to me, but what does the research show about the overall impact of early voting? Yeah, I think it, it seems counterintuitive to a lot of folks, but the theory behind that is that, you know, you don't have a sense of urgency that is taking place when election day is just one day and every kind of social and campaign, you know, message is get out and vote on, X day, December 6th, November 8th, whatever it is. And if you have a, a kind of a multi-week period, there's less urgency for folks to get out to vote. But overall, yeah, the the, the research on, on early voting, I, th I would say the consensus is that it doesn't impact turnout. There have been some studies that have found a negative turnout impact. Um, but generally, I think it's it's seen as a, um, you know, it, 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 just, it just doesn't impact that. And again, you know, the fact that a Democratic county might be holding early voting, it, it isn't because of that research, I don't think you can say that, oh, these are people who would have, who are now extra voters in the electorate. They're probably people who would have just turned out on election day anyway. With Saturday voting the Saturday after Thanksgiving, which obviously has passed by now, with that early voting period being reinstated, and it was mainly Democrats and Warnock who were challenging to allow it to go into effect. Um, so if Democrats are really hammering hard on early voting, then like, isn't there an argument then that they see a detriment if there aren't more early voting days? Yeah, I think there's a distinction between what a campaign would prefer and just kind of looking at it from a, you know, kind of purely 
data perspective. Like from a campaign's perspective, absolutely more early voting is better because once, uh, you know, if you have somebody you know is a strong supporter and they have turned out to vote, um, you know, on the Saturday before Thanksgiving or something, you can kind of check them off the list. You don't need to chase them down on election day. You know, I do think it makes Republicans' jobs harder by not encouraging early and, and mail voting among their um, their voters. But in the end, you know, I'm someone who's generally fairly skeptical of campaigns' impacts on um, on elections. You know, I think a good campaign can be worth a few percentage points, but and and you know that can be canceled out by a good campaign on the other side as well. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, I think that you know people who want to vote, obviously, some people are prevented from voting through things that are no fault of their own. Um, but that is generally not a, a huge number of, of voters and, you know, campaigns, not everybody who votes on election day, obviously is somebody who's had their door knocked on by a campaign. A lot of people just turn out to vote because they themselves want to vote. And a lot of people who are contacted by campaigns say, okay, great, thanks. Bye. And, you know, then they go about their day the way they were going to do it, whether that was to vote or not. So, um, from a campaign perspective, I get it strategically. I think that probably a lot of Democrats do believe that early voting helps them. I just don't think that's very well supported by the evidence. Um, and I also think that a lot of Democrats um, just kind of normative, normatively support early voting because it does make voting more convenient. Even if it doesn't increase turnout, it, it kind of allows voting to fit into a person's schedule better. Um, and, you know, it's not just the binary of does a person get to vote or not. It's about how easy it is for them to vote. Mm -hmm. um, and Democrats support early voting um, for that reason. All right. Well, we are going to continue watching this final week of the Georgia election. But let's move on and talk about the lame duck session that is getting underway in Congress. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. There's still a little over a month left in the current session of Congress, which 
will be the last time for a while that Democrats have full control of all levers of power in Washington. Before we left for the break, some of the most high-profile items that Democrats hoped to address were the Respect for Marriage Act, the Electoral Count Reform Act, and raising the debt ceiling. And because for this part of things, my politics brain was turned off, I haven't gotten a sense of whether there are other things that have been added to that docket since. What have you all seen? Are there other things that Democrats are going to try to sort of pass or address in the coming month? I think there's been some talk that Democrats may try to finally pass a marijuana banking reform bill. Um, basically, right now, under because of sort of arcane stuff in federal law, marijuana businesses, even in states where marijuana is legal, can't generally get um, accounts at banks because of federal regulations and. As a business, um, you can imagine that that might be quite a serious problem. Um, you just have a huge amount of cash on hand. So there has been a push um, for quite a while, and this bill has gone through a lot of different revisions to try to deal with that and to try to deal with some other marijuana reform measures. Um, there's also an assault weapons ban that has been getting some discussion, but um, even though the Biden administration was sort of making some noises like they thought, oh, this might happen, it, it seems like like there aren't votes for that. So um, even though there might be some talk about it, I, I wouldn't put that one at the top of my list of things to watch. Interesting. I hadn't heard about the marijuana banking bill, but we'll have to watch it. Otherwise, in order from maybe likeliest to pass to least likely, let's begin with the Respect for Marriage Act, which would sort of codify protections for interracial and same-sex marriage that the Supreme Court has already sort of ruled as precedent along with some other things regarding religious freedom. That, before the Thanksgiving break, had made it through the filibuster. Is that a done deal now? Do we All the Republicans who helped it get through the filibuster, will they ultimately vote for the bill? And do we expect this to become federal law by the end of the year or by the time Congress changes over? I would think so. They were able to get a pretty significant group of bipartisan senators on board, um, particularly Republicans, because I think there were some last minute changes to the bill um, protecting religious liberty. I think that's how um, they were able to get a pretty overwhelming swell of support from both Republicans and Democrats on this measure. That's right, Alex. Yeah, um, there were some religious liberty protections that were added um, that basically were caveating that religious organizations like churches or nonprofits or faith-based universities can't lose their tax-exempt status um, for refusing to perform or recognize same-sex marriages, um, and churches can't be required to perform same-sex weddings. Um, and that was seen as powerful enough that this bill got some support from some pretty unexpected quarters, um, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, and the National Association of Evangelicals, um, to be clear, not all Christian conservatives are happy with this. There has been plenty of pushback from other Christian conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation 
other important groups on the religious right saying that these religious liberty protections are not substantial enough um, and that this could still cause problems um, for people who and religions who don't believe in gay marriage. Um, But the fact that this got support from the LDS church and one of the biggest associations of evangelicals is significant. I think it's a sign of how firmly the debate about gay marriage has shifted from should gay marriage be legal to how do we carve out protections and exemptions for faiths and institutions and religious people who don't believe in gay marriage. And that's something where the Supreme Court has had a long line of cases, and I expect the Supreme Court to continue to hear those cases. And now it's something that was very important in getting so much Republican support for this bill. Yeah, so there were 12 Republicans who voted to advance the bill. They didn't ultimately vote on the bill. It was to get it through debate so that it could be voted on. Those were Roy Blunt of Missouri, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Susan Collins of Maine, Joni Erst of Iowa, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rob Portman of Ohio, Mitt Romney of Utah, Dan Sullivan of Alaska, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Todd Young of Indiana. As folks may know, some of those people are retiring, but what are the surprises in there and what is the motivation for voting this through? Todd Young's a little surprising. Yeah, I mean, there there are certainly some people on that list, Galen, who aren't known for being moderates, but I also like, you know, it's not like any of the super hardcore conservatives, you know, it's not like Ted Cruz signed on to this. So yeah, I'm not sure like anything super jumps out at me. I just, I think it's a, you know, kind of, as Amelia said, it's a reflection of how the debate on gay marriage has moved and how, you know, same-sex marriage has become normalized even for a lot of people who, um, you know, opposed it 10, 15 years ago. I mean, is there an aspect of strategy here, which is like, let's take this debate off the table so we don't have to talk about it in future elections or, you know, what have you? I mean, because it's interesting that like this specific group of 12, but not more, but also not less, like a, it was kind of like, you know, just enough plus two to get it past the filibuster. I'm curious just why those 12 people Well, I think generally the Supreme Court and specifically Justice Clarence Thomas created kind of a problem for Republicans in his concurring opinion in the Dobbs ruling over the summer, where he was saying, you know, we're not taking up other issues that are potentially implicated by the Supreme Court's ruling overturning the constitutional right to abortion, like same-sex marriage, like contraception, which were supported by a similar legal reasoning to the Roe ruling. He was saying, you know, we're not dealing with those in Dobbs, but I want to deal with those in the future. I think we want to rethink those. And that got a lot of play politically. Um, I think a lot of people heard about it. It was something that I've heard a lot in conversations with voters. And so I do think there is a sense in which Republicans had some extra motivation to deal with this just because the idea that the Supreme Court might swoop in and 
take away same-sex marriage protections um, was kind of, is kind of in the zeitgeist now. And especially after an election where the Dobbs ruling already seems like it was a pretty big problem for Republicans, I think just kind of like nipping that one in the bud may have be, been mm-hmm. seen as a good move. And, you know, you can they can say, you know, it's bipartisan. Like it's it's just it's also not the law is not codifying same-sex marriage in the sense that every it's telling states what to do. It's creating federal protections for it. And it's saying that states have to recognize same-sex marriages that were performed in other states. So I don't know how much that mattered, but it's sort of it's a little bit of an easier case to make, I think, um, because it's sort of addressing this question of whether states have to kind of recognize what happened in other states, but it's not a mandate to states. All right. The next item on the docket is the Electoral Count Reform Act, which is a bipartisan attempt to address some of the issues, quote unquote issues, I don't know how, how you want to describe it, that led to January 6th. And some of the avenues that Trump's campaign advisors, lawyers, whatever, and he himself pursued to try to overturn the 2020 election. What is the likelihood that this passes? And to what degree would it change how elections are conducted in America or counted, at least in America? Yeah, I think this one also has a a pretty good chance of passing. I believe that 10 Republican senators have already come out in favor of the kind of compromise bill that's being championed by Susan Collins and others. Um, And of course, that would be enough to to overcome the filibuster. Um, Did even Mitch McConnell say he supported it? Yes, Mitch McConnell uh, also uh, came out in favor of this a few months back. Um, So it does seem like it'll be on a glide path to passing. Um, But basically, yeah, Galen, you know, this is a bill that would patch some of the the loopholes um, that were exposed um, on around January 6th, 2021. So some of the provisions include, uh, it would clarify that the vice president's role in counting the electoral votes is purely ceremonial. So, you know, Donald Trump's theory of, you know, Mike Pence can just overturn the election is clearly debunked. Um, It would also raise the threshold for objecting to the election results to one fifth of uh, the members. So currently, if one member from each chamber objects to, say, Arizona's electoral votes, then it um, kind of kicks it to debate about that. And now it will require a, a you know, fairly substantial uh, minority. Um, and then it also kind of clarifies things for, you know, kind of the scenarios that people have talked about for 2024, which is what if a state sends two competing slates of electoral votes, one Democratic and one Republican to Congress, which one gets counted? And basically it clarifies that the one um, that the the governor certifies, unless the state law says otherwise, um, is going to be the one that Congress counts. It also provides for an expedited judicial review of these disputed um uh, electoral votes. So a court would immediately be able to step in and kind of cut the constitutional crisis off at its feet, hopefully. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, you know, I think it would go, uh, you know, a pretty good way to, um, uh, fixing some of the, um, the pathways that were exposed, um, in the 2020 election. Of course, you know, it's not going to do everything. A lot of what, 
happens, of course, elections are administered on the state and local level. This is a federal bill, so there's only so much that it can do. In addition, I think there is an element of, you know, it patches the holes from the last time, but that doesn't mean there aren't other holes that have yet to be exposed. Um, so, but, you know, I think that uh, in general, I've, I've heard kind of positive reviews of this reform bill um, from people who were concerned after the 2020 election. And let's wrap on the debt ceiling. From what I understand, the United States will reach its debt limit sometime in 2023. Of course, that will be when Republicans control the House. If passed its prologue, there's some suggestion that Republicans would try to use raising the debt ceiling to extract concessions from Democrats, like spending cuts in certain areas. Some of the, like a redux of some of the debates that happened in 2011, 2012. And so there has been some talk about Democrats raising the debt ceiling in advance of any of that happening to try to get out in front of it and prevent that game of chicken from happening. How how is this looking? Are Democrats going to raise the debt ceiling? This is something that the Democrats could, in theory, do unilaterally through the process known as budget reconciliation. Um, I think this year it doesn't seem like they have the votes in the Senate to do that. Um, Senator Joe Manchin, in particular, um, has not signaled that he would be on board. So even though this is clearly something that the Biden administration and a lot of Democrats in Congress would like to get taken care of so they don't have to deal with a messy and politically damaging showdown in the first few months of next year, um, I think this one is less likely to happen in the next month. So politically damaging for whom? Like, is there any sort of consensus about how those showdowns in 2011, 2012 shaped public opinion about Democrats and Republicans in Congress? Like, when... When that happens, who gets blamed? I think a lot of it has to do with the framing. Um, And basically, there's been discussion of Republicans sort of saying, we're not going to vote for a debt ceiling increase unless you Democrats give us cuts, spending cuts that we want. Um, And, you know, It might depend on what those spending cuts are. If it's cuts to something like Social Security or Medicare, then that might reflect badly on Republicans because those are pretty popular policies. Um, If the Democrats are being perceived as kind of like wanting to spend a lot of money and not wanting to agree to common sense budget cuts, then they could reflect poorly on them. So I think in some ways, it's a little bit of a messaging game. Um, and, you know, that raising the debt ceiling is something that Americans are not crazy about in general. Um, and people kind of think about raising the debt ceiling in the context of maybe a household budget or something. Um, not that that is really a, a good comparison, but people just don't want the country to go into more and more debt generally, if you ask them that question. Um, so, you know, there there are opportunities for Republicans to leverage this and say, if we're going to do this, then we need to make cuts in other places. But if they're suggesting big cuts to popular programs, then I think that could backfire on them as well. So I think a lot of it depends on how things actually play out. All right. Well, we will see. But let's get to our 2024 Democratic primary draft. So Biden has suggested that he intends to run in 2024, but he hasn't been super firm on that intention, saying that he would make up his mind for sure 
after the midterms. And it's a question Biden gets a lot because of his age. He just turned 80 and he would be 86 at the conclusion of a second term. So let's talk about what the alternatives might be in our first post-midterms 2024 Democratic draft. I have already randomized the order of this draft using random.org. Thanks, folks over there. And it will go Nathaniel, Alex, Galen, Amelia. And this is going to be a snake draft because we believe in fairness here at 538. And, and to clarify, the question here is who is likeliest to win the Democratic nomination in 2024. It's not necessarily who's likeliest to win the presidency or anything else. Uh, that's the question we're trying to answer. So is everyone ready? I just want to say I object to doing this in 2022, Galen. <laughs> I'm, I'm not ready. I think that we got, we should wait till 2023. I think that would be the civilized thing. But now I'm you know. here. I'll participate. I've got my game face on. I just wanted to register my discontent. Your disapproval. There are already candidates running, so we have we have no choice. It doesn't but to mean we have to do this now. We can wait until January. This, in fact, isn't even our first 2024 primary draft. I think we did one maybe in the first half of this year. Um, yeah. It was not so us to participate. This is a more, I would not have condoned that either. This is a, clearly least, a site-wide policy debate that we need to have internally about whether this is appropriate. Will but do. I'm here will now. Do. I won't blow it up. I promise. I'll be good. Okay. Nathaniel, and we're going to try to get through maybe three or so rounds of this. So we'll try to motor. I know we've already spent a good amount of time discussing what's to come in Georgia and in Congress. But Nathaniel, take it away with your first draft pick. Hmm, who should I choose for the first pick? The most likely Democrat. Um, you know, Galen, I think I'm going to plant my flag. The suspense is and killing say, me. Yeah, I know, Rake, it's just... <laughs> I think it's going to be President Joe Biden. That is my pick. Boom. All right. Wow. Um, do you feel yeah. like you need that to was give risky. an explanation? Well, listen, or do you want to just leave it yes, there? Yes, you know... I, I, I think there's absolutely a very real possibility that he does not run for a second term, which would be very interesting, unprecedented in modern times. Um, but I also think that he's clearly more likely than any other single person, right? If you were to kind of somewhat arbitrarily say he has a 50-50 chance of running for re-election again, then I think he's virtually assured of uh, of the nomination. If he were to run again, I think he would only get probably one or two kind of fringe challenger from you know kind of the progressive wing of the party. Um, I don't think any significant, uh, more moderate establishment figures would challenge him. Um, and so, so yeah, so I think he's got a critical mass right there. And then in the fifty percent of scenarios in which he doesn't run again, you know, you'd have you know that's obviously a very splintered field where, you know, you might have some Kamala Harris, you might have some Pete Buttigieg, you might have some Gavin Newsom. So yeah, if you had to pick one person, um, you know, it, it, it's uh, to kind of start the draft off with, it's got to be Joe Biden. Yeah. Nathaniel, I don't think you're going to get too much argumentation from us against that. So Alex, go right on ahead. Um, I'll stick with the Biden trend and I'll say Vice President Kamala Harris. I'll choose her for number two. Not happy about it because I am on Amelia's team that I <laughs> think this might be a little early, and I do think Biden is all going right, to run again. Right, but for right. the sake for the sake of this fun fun game, I will say Kamala Harris. Um, 
the reason I say her um, for anyone who wants me to elaborate is there was actually a morning consult survey from December of 2021 to September of 2022. And Harris led pretty significantly in a potential field um, in a Biden list 2024 primary. So she had 28% support as of late September. Um, second to her was Pete Buttigieg, who had 13%. And then everyone else, you know, AOC, Gavin Newsom, Amy Klobuchar, they all had, uh, you know, under 10% support. So I just think the fact that she's in the White House now, obviously, that would be a big boost to her candidacy if she decided to run again. Um, I also think that she would perform well with black voters who, as we know, resurrected Biden's once failing presidential campaign. Um, and I think if she could get the support of folks like Clyburn and other prominent names in the South, um, she could make a name for herself if she you know, decides to run for the presidency if Biden does step down. All right. Um, I kind of feel like I got the worst draw in this draft because I don't get two picks, but I also don't get one of the two obvious ones to start off with. Uh, nonetheless, I am going to pick Pete Buttigieg. And I will use history as something of my guide here, which is that it frequently happens that folks who perform well in the last presidential primary or usually oftentimes the runner-up, will go on to win the next primary. Of course, in this case, that would be one Bernard Sanders. I think that if the argument is going, if Biden is stepping aside because of his age, in part, or in large part because of his age, I think that that will be a sort of high-profile issue in whatever Democratic primary ensues. And while I do think progressives might be amongst the most motivated to turn out in such a primary, I think that the time has probably passed. Although it was this was like a tie for me um, in some ways between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. Okay, so now why Pete Buttigieg? He performed very well in the 2020 primary, particularly given that he was a mayor. He won the Iowa caucuses. Mm, he performed mm. well in... Did he? He, nah. he did. I mean, we don't condone how early he claimed victory, but he ultimately <laughs> did win the Iowa caucuses as they were structured. It, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Bernie Sanders won the popular vote. It's, it's, un, it's well, ambiguous. We only, who, the right, calculations... I, it, it is too early to start debating the, the Iowa calculations were, were ambiguous. There were... They were, they were, or there was some sloppiness. I think it's better said that Buttigieg and Sanders were the co-winners of Iowa. So once again, backing up my yes. feeling that it's sort of a tie yeah. between the two of them. But I think there's other polling to back up that he is in a higher place now. The polling that Alex just mentioned puts him behind Kamala Harris. He has the highest approval rating of any member of Biden's cabinet. I don't know that that means a whole lot because cabinet members aren't usually super high profile, but... Folks generally like him. He has some crossover appeal between sort of the college-educated portions of the Democratic um, electorate and the more sort of working class portions of the Democratic electorate that still exists. He clearly has some issues with black voters, but I think improving his name recognition over the past four years will help him in that arena potentially. I think, and here's where I would, why I would, how I would sort of pit him against Kamala Harris, is that 
first and foremost, we just already know what their campaigns look like. She didn't make it to Iowa. He was a quote unquote co-winner. And if, and I think that if Biden doesn't run, it will become competitive. I don't think that it will be a sort of walk for Harris because I think that there's enough hesitancy about her performance in 2020 and her performance as vice president that folks will challenge her. And I think Pete Buttigieg is, has already sort of the reporting behind the scenes shows that he's already preparing to do so should um, the opportunity arise. And um, yeah, he has he has some of the things that would make him a formidable candidate, which is kind of youth and a sort of crossover between some different parts of the party, but generally trending towards moderate. The issue with Buttigieg for me is is his continued, or well, I guess I shouldn't say continued, but he, in 2020, he really struggled with voters of color, which of course are such a big part of the Democratic base, and he needs to figure out how to at least get a critical mass of them. And especially when you compare against Kamala Harris, who would likely inherit a lot of Biden support, uh, of course, being a, a woman of color herself, um, I, I think it's going to be challenging for Buttigieg to do that. Well, Harris was not still an option. But also, let me just say that Bernie Sanders did really poorly with voters of color in 2016 and seemed to increase his performance significantly with Hispanic voters in 2020 based on sort of making the pitch more aggressively and increased name recognition. But he did that also through a very aggressive grassroots campaign in places like California and Nevada that, you know, he invested in that infrastructure really early. And the Sanders campaign was known for really knowing how to do that kind of campaign. And I don't know if I would trust Buttigieg to be able to pull out a similar improvement. Um, the other thing I'll just say about Harris is that I, I totally take your point about um, the fact that she ran a pretty bad campaign in the 2020 primary and Buttigieg ran a much better one. But I'm not sure how much we can draw from that based on the fact that she would be going into 2024, presumably, you know, if Biden's not running, she's the vice president. Democrats are not going to want a really bloody primary that fractures the party. So she may be going in with a lot of establishment support, more resources. Maybe she's learned from the previous campaign what went wrong. So while I think it is important to remember that she was not an especially strong candidate um, four years ago, it's possible that circumstances will change for her. Yeah, I agree with that, Amelia. I feel like it'd be... I mean, who knows what'll happen, but if there's already going to be a fractured Republican field, I can't imagine Democrats are going to want that on their side as well. And if Biden does step aside, I feel like Harris is kind of like the obvious second choice I mean, just not, because she's vice president. If and, she's the vice president and the president's stepping down, like Democrats yeah. are not going to want a bunch of people to come in and go for her jugular, you know, and then she goes in a super weak candidate when she already right. arguably has a disadvantage. Um, you know, not that like Democrats can control who runs or what happens. Yeah. We've seen from past experience that they can't do that at all. But certainly that would be, I think, I think the establishment's preference. Guys, I think we're starting to uncover the reason that Biden is going to be incentivized not to step down or step aside for 2024. And it's it only be going to become mess. more clear as we keep going through yeah. this. Because it would be a hot gonna, mess. <laughs> we're not going to stop here. So, Amelia, you got two picks. Okay. Go right ahead. All right. All right. So my first one. I'm coming in hot off of the 2022 midterms. I'm coming in with a fresh face, and my pick is Gretchen yeah. Whitmer. Gretch. 
There you go. Yikes. Gretch. Um, Big Gretch. And this is for several reasons. Big Gretch. Gretch. That's what they call her in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I don't know if it's, uh, it'll take me a little while <laughs> to get used to that one. Anyway, um, so she is, uh, has been a very like popular and successful governor of Michigan. She's had some ups and downs, particularly over handling of closures and mask mandates during the COVID-19 pandemic. But she's coming out of the 2022 midterms with, you know, really solid victory, and also with Democrats just having done really well in Michigan. Um, Michigan was a real success story for Democrats coming out of 2022. And I think Whitmer is particularly well positioned to run in 2024 if Biden steps aside, because she has kind of made the issue of abortion her issue for years now. It's something that she's talked about. It's something that she's campaigned on in the aftermath of the Dobbs ruling. Even before the Dobbs ruling, she was out there saying, I'm going to protect the right to abortion in Michigan, a state where it was not clear that abortion was going to continue to be legal. Now, of course, after the outcome of the ballot measure on the midterm ballot, it will be. Um, But I think she's really established this as being an issue where she has a lot of credibility and it's a really important issue to Democrats right now. Um, So, you know, I think in a different environment, would she come in with more, you know, name recognition, more kind of wind in her sails than any other Democratic governor who came out of 2022 with a solid margin, like, you know, Jared Polis of Colorado? Not necessarily. But I think abortion is going to continue to be a big issue going into 2024. And she's a particularly strong candidate. Plus, coming from a purple state, being the governor of a purple state generally is a really good place to be when you're launching a presidential campaign. So that's why I think Gretchen Whitmer is the first first fresh face I'd pick. All right. I'll I'll take it. I'll take it. It's not Bernie Sanders. Accept it. Thanks, um... Galen. (laughs) I was, I was worried. Um, and then for my number two pick, I'm going to pick a very much not a fresh face, and that is Bernie Sanders. Um, I hear what you were saying, Galen, about if Biden steps aside because of age, that does make things difficult for Bernie Sanders, who is also quite old. Um, but I think Bernie Sanders, because his base is so young and because it's so enthusiastic, he just I think he has a sort of claim to vitality that Biden can sometimes find harder to muster. Um, And I also don't I think maybe Bernie Sanders just doesn't care. Um, You know, he will will want, you know, if there's if there's a primary um, that Biden is not in, he will want there to be a solid progressive candidate. And who's that going to be? Who's the person who's going to, you know, sort of have the same name recognition as Bernie Sanders, have the same campaign infrastructure as Bernie Sanders? Like, he's done this twice now. He did better among Latino voters in 2020. Um, You know, I think he might say to himself, hey, third time's the charm, and I'm the best hope for my wing of the party. And, you know, if it's a really fractured field, he might be able to pull it out. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's right. You know, it's it is like hard to imagine Sanders running a third time given how old he is. But I think it's like for for drafts like this, you know, I think like, you know, the progressive wing of the party needs to be accounted for. 
And he is probably the single most likely, kind of similar to Harris, right? The single most likely name from that wing of the party, even though, you know, he kind of has a lot of, you know, you can pick apart at the case very well. I'm really interested to see. I, I, I think he probably won't run, but I'm really interested to see what happens to the progressive movement in, you know, the wake of Bernie Sanders, right? Does he try, does he point to somebody and say, this is my successor? Um, or is it going to be five different progressives? running, which would, you know, I mean, progressives are already kind of behind the eight ball, right? Because, um, you know, the, the moderate wing of the party, the party decides and black voters tend to support moderate candidates and things like that. Um, and that would really, I think, you know, obliterate their, chan- their chances. But if he did point at somebody and I won't name names this time, but if he point, point does point at somebody and says, this is my, um, you know, my person, um, I think that person would be formidable for many of the same reasons that Bernie Sanders was formidable in 2016 and 2020. All right, Amelia, you have taken both my second and third <laughs> picks. So I feel I'm a bit floundering at the moment. I think we're getting into an area here where it's like, who the hell knows? It's really like, what kind of campaign would they run? There aren't obviously structural reasons to think that they would do particularly well. And so I'm trying to think if I should go with a safe pick, like, you know, Gavin Newsom or Amy Klobuchar, or go with a more sort of, non-traditional um pick and for the sake of this game i'm going to choose new york city mayor eric mm-hmm. adams Ooh, spicy mm. um <laughs> in another world i would pick Raphael warnock but i think the senate is so important for democrats and obviously there is a republican governor of georgia that all the party players would strongly discourage a run by Warnock because that would mean one less seat for Democrats going into a year where they expect to perform relatively poorly in Senate elections, which is 2024. But I think he has a lot of the makings of a very strong presidential nominee. Like, he he cross-pressures voters in similar ways. He's a person of faith. He can speak as a pastor. He can speak as a black man. He can speak as somebody from a purple state. He can speak as a young person. There's all kinds of, and he gets politics. I think if you watch his ads, it's clear that he understands that politics are about persuasion and not just rallying your base. But I didn't pick yeah, Raphael Warnock. Who so are you I'm arguing sorry. for? So you're picking um, Raphael Warnock? <laughs> Why am I going to pick? Pretty strong case for I think Warnock. I think <laughs> yeah, okay. he's we'll a very different Warnock. candidate yeah. from Raphael Warnock. But he is a moderate. He is black. And he is the mayor of a city of 9 million people, which is larger than um, lots of states. He also, I think, understands politics in a way that a lot of Democrats that think they're playing to the base don't really get. So he ran on crime in 2021 in an environment where that was not going to be the obviously popular thing to do in a Democratic primary and won. He has like, you know, in that race against Andrew Yang, had like no, basically no followers on Twitter, but sort of got intuitively how the sort of machine politics work, what kind of things to argue, how to capture the attention of the traditional media. And I think that that helps in a campaign, especially in a campaign where a lot of people might be might be hiring a lot of campaign staffers who are more tuned into Twitter than what the actual Democratic base is tuned into, which is not ultimately super progressive, pretty diverse, concerned about crime and inflation and things like that. Nicely said, Galen. I know I kind of picked two and that was kind of cheating, but um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
You did you did half the work for me. I'm gonna go ahead and pick Warnock, which I was already planning on doing before Galen said his name, just for the record. Um, Galen, you've made very convincing points as to why he would be a strong candidate. Um, so I second everything that you said. I think a lot of whether he would be even viable as a candidate depends on what happens on December 6th. Um, but like, you know, you said he could speak, you know, he already has shown that he can court crossover support. He convinced a number of Georgians to vote for himself and Republican Brian Kemp. Um, he could, I think he could do fairly well in the deep South, um, particularly, as a black man running in the South, I think it would be easy for him to kind of coalesce uh, support in states like South Carolina and just like other, you know, Southern states where black voters really have an outsized voice in the electoral process. Um, and I think if he wins this runoff and the 2021 runoff, like that's a pretty strong message to run on, especially running statewide in a state like Georgia and just showing that he can, you know, if he can fend off Republicans two years in a row, I think that really just speaks to his strength as a politician. You know, everyone knows how good of a fundraiser Warnock is as well. Um, so I, I think there's like a pretty decent argument for why he could be a plausible, emphasis on plausible, uh, 2024 candidate. But I think as we're kind of getting at, I think this, if nothing else, this chat shows more than anything why Biden will probably run for a second term. So my question, Alex, is having strongly considered picking him myself, how does he get over the hurdle of taking a seat away from Democrats in the Senate? That would be the one knock against him, I think, uh, especially with the 2024 map um, and Democrats having a lot more seats to defend that I think will be harder for them is my understanding. Um, but so that would be the reason I'd say he may not run. Um, but, you know, I think if the options are, you know, Whitmer or well, some, some of the other people who have been said, I won't really... <laughs> I, I, think that he's, I think he's a strong. I mean, yeah, I think Warnock could say, you know, if we're in a situation where there's a super chaotic Democratic primary and there's no, you know, maybe Harris is perceived as being weak, um, you know, doesn't hasn't managed to consolidate a lot of support. Um, you know, it could Warnock could be kind of making the case that like, yeah, you're going to lose a Senate seat, but I'm your best chance of winning the presidency. So in this hypothetical, I think, crazy world we are spinning here, there is an argument he could make. Well, let's also remember the, you know, what happened with Georgia in, in 2020. So Warnock can resign from the Senate to run for president. Brian, if if he wins the runoff, Democrats have 51 Senate seats, that won't cost Democrats the Senate. And then there'll be a special election in 2024. And if Warnock wins, he can... Uh, presumably he will, um, you know, carry Georgia because it's his home state and perhaps carry along the Democratic candidate in the special election there as well. So I don't think it's quite that intractable problem for him. Okay. Yeah. All the dominoes have to fall, but it's possible. It's, yeah. and We would officially in that circumstance rename Georgia the voting state as opposed to the new yeah. state. <laughs> exactly. And then there would be another runoff and yeah, yeah. Just more runoffs. This is what America wants. More runoffs. <laughs> More elections. I mean, I guess the other argument is if you're going to lose the Senate majority anyway, right? 
who cares about one extra seat? Um, but I don't, I don't know how persuasive that <laughs> argument is. All right, we are going to snake along here, and up next is Nathaniel. Okay, Nathaniel, make your two picks. Okay, so last time we did this in May, I did for my second and third picks, I did one progressive and one kind of moderate governor. Um, and those were Elizabeth Warren and Roy Cooper. Um, I'm going to stay with that tradition, but I'm going to change up the names because I want to get some new blood in here. So for my progressive, I am going to choose Ayanna Presley from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, I, I think that she, so uh, everything I said before about, you know, Bernie Sanders and the progressive movement, you know, I think they need to coalesce around somebody or else they're going to be totally divided and, and will fall. Um, I think Presley is a really intriguing candidate if she emerges as, you know, the winner of the quote unquote progressive lane, because she's also a person of color and can appeal to black people. And I think that that is kind of the um, missing ingredient for a lot of, for progressives nationally. And I think that a lot of the members of the squad have shown this as Alex and I have written, um, you know, they have been able to combine the kind of progressive voting base, which is predominantly, you know, kind of like white college educated and uh, along with the um, voters of color. So in Presley's case, you know, black voters in Boston and in AOC's case, uh, Latinos. Um, and so I think that would also be a very powerful kind of combination nationally. So if she were to run, which of course is a big question mark, and if she were to get, you know, the Sanders endorsement, which maybe is, is asking too much, I think she would be strong. Um, for my next pick for the moderate governor pick, I will go with Jared Polis of Colorado. Um, he just had a very strong midterm performance, um, winning by, I believe, almost 20 points, uh, as Amelia mentioned earlier. Um, I think he's at kind of the height of his powers um, for a similar reason as Gretchen Whitmer. I would put him ahead of, of folks like, um, well, I won't say other names. <laughs> uh, Wait, can you, you know, say his, other names? His name, I really don't his know name, I'm going to pick. His, <laughs> His name rhymes with uh, Pavin uh, Glusum. Um, mm, mm, mm. But uh, yeah, I, I, exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I just, I think, you know, obviously again, and in the scenario Biden doesn't run, electability is going to be important to people. They're going to look around, oh, Jared Polis, you know, cruised to reelection in a kind of swingy state, getting bluer, but um, but he certainly over, overperformed, you know, kind of what, what people expected. So that's going to have a lot of appeal. Um, okay. I'm just going to throw a wild card out there and have some fun with it and say, why not Josh Shapiro? Ooh, that's a good wild card. Hmm. You know? That's a good one. Yeah. New governor of Pennsylvania just repelled a very far right challenger and beat him pretty handily. Um, you know, I think he's going to have a higher profile um, just because of that in the, you know, going forward. Um, I just think he'll be a name to watch out for. I'm kind of just throwing names out there at this point, but I mean, I see him definitely as a viable contender if this is, if that's the route he decides to go. And definitely if you're talking about coming out of 2022, he certainly belongs on that list. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It feels like the triad is Gretchen Whitmer, Raphael Warnock. I mean, we have to see what happens next week. And that's probably speaking too soon. That is speaking too soon. And Josh Shapiro. Are there any other clear stars coming? I'm, I'm asking for a friend. I mean, Fetterman. Um, who might use them as a pick. Fetterman, you know. Fetterman. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. Fetterman. Okay. 
meme master. Batman knows how to make a TikTok. It's the only qualification for winning a presidential primary. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. He wants that Gen Z vote, and I don't blame him. All right. I am going to take one for the team and choose our friend Pavin, um, (laughs) a.k.a. Gavin Newsom. And the reason is because he wants it. And in... (laughs) At this point in the process, I think that is not a bad rationale because, you know, like who is going to actually run? Like, I kind of don't think, I kind of don't think Raphael Warnock would run. I'm not sure who knows, but I kind of don't think he would run in a world where Biden doesn't run. Gavin Newsom is definitely running. And so that at least improves his odds of winning somewhat. Why do you think he's definitely running? Well, because Harris yeah, is would be the logical person to succeed yeah, but, um, Biden. They have a and blood pact. Harris is the other like star who came up through the California political infrastructure at the same time, I, and yeah. that would be that would be like a pretty wild betrayal. I of, think this is why him. Newsom came out the other day and said he wasn't going to run. I think he and Harris got in a room together, hashed it out, and decided it was going to be Harris. I don't know about that. I think that, do you think that Gavin Newsom, as ambitious as he is, and as audacious as he was in the run-up to the midterms, basically starting his campaign, talking first and foremost about national issues and getting on all the shows, et cetera, do you think that he's going to watch a whole bunch of people challenging Kamala Harris and just say, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to run. We have a, we have a pact. Like, that does not seem... Maybe he's going to be Kamala's that, Veep. California, California ticket. Oh, boy. No one else wants that? Look, so my two reasons <laughs> were, one, he wants it, which at this point I think is enough of a reason to pick him. And two, the politics betters, the Scottish teens, as we like to call them, clearly know something that I don't because they have they have given him... <laughs> A fourteen percent chance. Where <laughs> they don't of know something that we do. Democratic nomination behind Mr. Biden himself. So uh, that's my logic. Okay, Amelia, you get the final pick, and I'm just going to go on the record here saying I thought I had a, par- a terrible uh, draw number at the beginning, and I probably have the lineup that people will be least excited about. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna end with another politician from Georgia, Stacey Abrams. She's free to do whatever she wants. She lost the governor's race. She does not have the prob- any of the problems that these other people who hold pesky elected offices have now. And in all seriousness, she did she does not have a great winning track record, but she has really good name recognition compared to some of these other people we're talking about, like someone like Jared Polis, who, yes, has this cred as as someone who has done really well in his purpley blue state, but most people don't know who he is. And I think going into a primary, again, in this crazy world we're imagining where Biden doesn't run and there's kind of a, you know, a scrum between Democrats, she's someone where a lot of Democrats already know who she is and she already has a brand. And I think that will be useful going into a primary. Um, And, you know, she could bring together different parts of the party. She's tried to do that with, um, I think, limited success so far, as as Alex has written. But um, she was dealt a hard hand in 2022 
running against Kemp. And so, you know, she might just feel like, got to keep the momentum going, pull a Beto O'Rourke, hope it goes better for her than it went for Beto. And also, you can also say for Stacey Abrams that she wants it. She was on this podcast and she said she She wanted to be president. So uh, she wants it. Okay. We I mean, have... everyone wants it. The question is not whether people want it. The question is whether they appear to only want that as opposed to actually All the other things that you can have in people life. People in the country. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, okay, so Nathaniel, you have Biden, Ayanna Presley, and Jared Polis. Alex, you have Kamala Harris, Raphael Warnock, and Josh Shapiro. I have Pete Buttigieg, Eric Adams. And who was my, uh, who was my third pick? Um, uh, Gavin Newsom <laughs> and Amelia, you have Gretchen Whitmer, Bernard Sanders, and um, Stacey Abrams. All right, listeners, if you have thoughts on how this went, you can feel free to share them. But let's leave it there. Thank you, Amelia, Nathaniel, and Alex. Thank you. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski has been our intern for most of this year. Uh, She has moved on to what's next. And I just wanted to say thank you, Emily, so much for doing such a great job um, as our podcast intern in 2022. We really loved having you and we're excited to see everything you do next. Folks, you can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.